0: You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange, where we meet the creators shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Martha. Thank you for being with us. This week on the podcast, you'll hear a familiar voice, but in a slightly different context, as we welcome DJ, writer and audio documentary producer Zakia Sewell to the interview chair
1: all of my documentaries. I'm just trying finding the beauty in sound that's not just about what's being said, but like, you know, um, how to find other ways sonically to tell, to tell stories.
0: So you will have heard her many times on this podcast, conducting the interviews. But Zakia has a wonderful story of her own, that's rooted in music and deeply considered curation, and expands across her portfolio of intricately crafted programmes documenting musical culture, including of course, her highly respected NTS show, Questing, and her recent series for BBC Radio 4, My Albion, which was all about exploring the songs, folklore, and symbols that make up British national identity. So today's podcast episode is a rare insight into the life of an audio documentary maker. I spoke to Zakia about some of her incredible programs, about the nerves that can come with releasing a project into the world and her impressively thorough research process. I hope that you have a wonderful time listening to Zakia Sewell's RA Exchange. Zakia joins me on the line. Hi, Zakia. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited to um, have you on the other side of the microphone for a change. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I've
1: literally just done an interview on the opposite, like the opposite way around. So it's quite, it's quite nice actually to have things um, turned around every now and then.
0: Would you be able to set the scene for our listeners? Like, where are you today? And what's today kind of had in store so far?
1: Oh well, you know it's another dreary day in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. I've sort of the start of the year has been quite mellow because yeah, all of well, a large portion of last year I was sort of all cylinders firing, working on this series. Um, my Albion that was on Radio 4 and um, kind of you know when you're just completely immersed in a project and uh, all of your kind of waking moments, especially like when there's not much else going on in life. <laughs> I kind of taken up with with that and so obviously finishing that and in the new year I'm sort of going back to this little like bits and bobs and it's kind of it takes a bit of um, reclimatizing I guess. So I'm kind of enjoying having a bit more brain space but I'm kind of missing that um that feeling of, like, inspiration, I guess, that I was I was very much in last year.
0: Mm, yeah, I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the come down, isn't it, after, like, a, after a big project, yeah. <laughs> Definitely the, the readjustment phase of going back into life and ideas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you're up for it, I would love for you to kind of take us back a bit um, and share with us your kind of earliest memory connected to... Storytelling or being captured by a story.
1: Hmm. Well, it's because my my I guess my journey into radio is sort of not entirely straightforward. In that I I didn't really necessarily know that I wanted to do radio. So it was almost through through sound and kind of music that I ended up um, ended up working in radio and in storytelling. But now that you mention it, I do. <laughs> have quite a vivid memory actually that my my um, my dad's in a band like a funny like like folk band or he used to be and um they used to um play at this place in west london that was like an underground crypt and they 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 used to have sort of like spoken word performances and like storytelling and stuff before and then like um, my dad's my dad's band would occasionally play and um and it was the whole idea of it was that just like ordinary people they're not necessarily um, storytellers they're not necessarily writers or or creative people but it was like the idea they were sort of invited to just tell a story like something that happened to them in their life or something that someone told them and um yeah that that's what comes to mind because it was quite it was quite amazing just seeing ordinary people sort of faced with the task of like telling this story to to a room full of strangers and all the kind of incredible things that came out of that and and um and also this idea that we all you know we all have stories to tell and it can be something really banal or it can be something fantastical and amazing but that that idea that like everyone has a story in them I guess comes to mind so that's probably that's probably one of the one of the first and most vivid memories I guess I have Mm
0: -hmm. what would you say the impact was of going to those events and seeing those stories being told
1: well, I think it's, it's there's something quite beautiful about seeing... People are quite vulnerable, I guess, in that situation. Like, especially, it's quite different. It's not people who are used to public speaking, necessarily. So they start off a bit kind of mumbling or awkward. And, you know, you really are... You're exposing something um, of yourself when you put yourself in that position. And obviously, that's, like, on a stage. But it's quite similar, I guess, when you put a microphone in, in front of somebody who... Um, and you're asking them to tell you something... Um, a story so, or their their opinion on, on something and and it is a very intimate um, relationship that you get into like for that moment for that 20 minutes half an hour or an hour or whatever that you're interviewing that person you're kind of in this zone together and it's just you and that person and you're you're in a very intimate moment and And like, when that goes well, it's like really amazing. I find it quite meditative (laughs) when it, when it doesn't go well, it's really intense because you're just sort of like trying to like get water from a stone and it's just you, but, um, yeah, I guess it's that there's, there's, there's an intimacy, I guess, involved in that kind of connects back to that early memory.
0: Mm. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your kind of soundtrack to growing up. Um, in terms of music, but also just like sounds around your home and any kind of sonic contributions from your parents that kind of made a sort of a landscape for your growing up and your teenage years?
1: Well, it's quite, it's quite funny. Two things come to mind. (laughs) One is, um, you know, both my parents were musicians or like, you know, in their spare time. So my mum is a singer and um, my dad plays double bass and keyboard and guitar. And they actually met through my uncle. My uncle was at drama school with my mum. And so my mum and my dad and my uncle like were in a band together and they used to kind of like go busking. And and um, there's lots of like funny stories that I've heard over the years. And so uh, I kind of grew up around music and you know my mum tells this story about oh she was gigging until she was eight months pregnant or bouncing around on stage I, mean, I don't know if that's actually true but um you know it's part of the family mythology so you know my early memories would have just been like you know my parents were quite young when they had me as well and like I they were, they were the only people out of all their friends that had kids That had a kid, so I would be like sleeping at rehearsals or at parties with music, and you know, I was was sort of around it to the point where I think you know, um, if I ever had to go to sleep in a quiet environment, I think I used to find it quite difficult because I was sort of used to this hum or just this, like you know, this this um, falling asleep to to sound. So my parents are both deeply into music. My dad is really into jazz and folk. My mum is like really into soul, but also like house music. So um, that was kind of a musical landscape. But in terms of you know other non-musical sounds, like I grew up really close to Heathrow Airport <laughs> uh, in a place called Hounslow, which is like you know end of the Piccadilly line zone six. It's a bit of like a it's a bit of a dreary place. Really great Indian food, um, but not really much else happening. But Except, the planes. Oh my God, it's so intense. It's like you know, um, a plane like going so low in the sky every two minutes, and um, and then when I was when I was like really young, it was like the Concorde. So. Um, I remember like being at school and like the Concorde would go over and it'd just be this like incredibly loud sound and these you kind of get used to these drones and so I spent another part of my childhood in Wales and I I used to get freaked out just like by silence because it was sort of growing up in such a noisy environment growing up in a block of flats on the main road and music and everything like that so yeah those (laughs) in terms of formative sounds uh, the drone of the Concorde and uh, mum and dad's music. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's quite a quite a nice contrast you had going on. <laughs> um let's hear a bit more about your career path and getting into radio what was the first audio documentary you ever made and how did you kind of get into it
1: so the first audio documentary i ever made was um a radio Four archive hour which is um basically like a, a, one of their slots that's a programme that's composed mostly of Archive, and um, it was about the Race Relations Act, which was um, the first piece of um, anti-racist legislation to come um, into the UK, I'm trying to remember, in the in the 60s, I think it was 1964 or 1965. And um, I'd been doing um, a, an internship with a production company called Cast Iron uh, Radio, and basically you know i i was kind of plunged into the deep end because it was just like go and go and listen to all this archive so um i was sort of going through the bbc archive and then i went to various different archives um like black history archives or kind of race relations archives around the country and just finding whatever audio they had and just listening to all these all these voices um and you know it was particularly like listening to the these like, Caribbean voices from the from the 1960s and then hearing some weird um, BBC documentary uh, you know where they're interviewing like you know white people in Birmingham about what they think about the influx of colored people coming in and all this racist stuff and but like this you know just kind of being it was my first experience I guess of being really transported back in time through sound and just immersing myself in this in this world of different accents and strange voices that you just don't really hear anymore um, And so, yeah, that was the first, that was the first um, documentary that I was involved in, I was sort of co-producing it or like, and researching. Um, and that, that kind of really started me off and then I just stayed at Cast Iron for quite a while and then, um, eventually worked up to making my own features. Um,
0: yeah. Is there a particular moment or something that led you to want to use audio as a format for telling stories?
1: I feel so as I as I mentioned I I kind of so I studied English literature at uni and in many ways my mind is um, very kind of it's quite analytical and I guess that my, my course was very analytical um, and about sort of unpicking and unraveling texts and and very research heavy. Um, So that's kind of one part of my brain that is kind of quite methodical in that way. And then there's the other part of my brain that is like much more creative and loose. And that is, you know, it's like very, you know, deeply into music and, and kind of the opposite. And so when I finished uni, I was like so much in that an- like analysis world that I was sort of just like going a bit crazy, and I was like, I-, I need to just go and do something completely different. So I started working, that's when I started working at Honest John's, and I was sort of following the musical thing a bit more and left that research aspect behind. Um, but then, you know, as a few years went on, I started to feel like I kind of, I was looking for, um, a path or a kind of a job that would somehow bring these two parts together. And then I started, started looking I was thinking about TV research or something like that. And then, yeah, so I'd get um, kind of discovered because I didn't really grow up with radio um, in a traditional sense, like more music radio. Like my dad was big into Giles Peterson's show, da da da, but not really that kind of speech radio. So I kind of found it artificially, I guess, through lo- like searching for something. And then um, I just felt like this could be a good way of bringing these two worlds together this kind of like sound, emotive, feeling, creative, open kind of aspect, and then that more structured research aspect. And I do feel like that's a place that I feel quite comfortable where I'm able to bring those two things together. So that was kind of what led me to seek out some production companies and start that um, journey um, in radio. Mm.
0: Let's learn a bit more about some of your programmes. I know I have ones that I want to ask you more about, but maybe you could start us off. Is there one that you're like shiningly proud of that just jumps to mind that you want to talk about first?
1: Oh well, I'm still kind of bathing in the glory of the of the Albion series, which I really um, loved, and I just was so grateful to be able to make, and so probably that's the one that's the most kind of fresh in my mind. So, yeah, probably, yeah. Should I just should, do you want me to you want to, you're going Let's to ask hear me about, about it? it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to know, honey? <laughs> I want to know all
0: of it. Um, I really enjoyed listening to that. Not only the way it was put together was like this kind of I don't know amazing piece of sewing the way it was all woven together with the sounds and everything um but yeah let's hear about the whole thing so why did you want to make this program and for those who haven't heard it do you want to just give a little intro as to what it is
1: yes yeah, so my albion was a four part bbc radio 4 series that um i presented and co-produced um over the summer basically and it went out um in november and december of last year and it's about many things but it's ultimately looking at british national national identity and um, sort of but using almost like folk culture myths stories and songs as a way of looking at it so it's kind of like the vessel is looking at folk culture but really you're looking at folk culture in a way to to understand more about britishness and um, the various different Aspects that make up um, British national identity, the the conflict, the conflicts and complications, as well as the kind of um, nice, nicer bits. So that's it in a nutshell. And um, yeah, it it in terms of the genesis of the series, um, we. So I've been working with a producer called Alan Hall at um, a production company called Falling Tree. Productions and we've done a few things together, and then there was basically an opportunity to like do a bigger series. And initially, we had that earmarked as um, a kind of music interview series. Um, and then it was actually during the first lockdown that we was, we had an opportunity to like relook at that pitch and work out what exactly we were going to do. And this was, you know, like in the peak of lockdown, like Black Lives Matter. And just all all this kind of intense social, political stuff that was sort of happening as we were like locked up in our homes. And it just kind of didn't feel like the right time to just do a, a nice, but potentially slightly wishy-washy kind of music um, series. So um, I kind of, I, I was rethinking and, and I'd had this idea um, about doing something about folk culture and um, folk music, my relationship to it for a while because Um, you know I've always been very drawn to English folk music as well as other folk musics from around the world but I kind of felt this tension about whether you know why not just folk music even but like you know into Stonehenge and like druids and pagans and all this like kind of weird old English stuff but then feeling like what's my relationship to it as a mixed-race person like living in 21st century London like what what and almost like a bit of like a guilt about liking it because it's quite hard to I guess connect or feel um feel at one with British history as someone with Caribbean blood (laughs) um and all of that kind of negative uh baggage that comes with you know that that side of British history so that was kind of this that was an idea that had been with me for a while and then uh, so it was an opportunity to develop that but also You know, I've been thinking a lot about my position as a mixed race person and the platforms that I have and the privileges that I have, especially, you know, around the time of Black Lives Matter. And I was thinking about using my platform on Radio 4 to what is a largely middle class, middle aged, white audience and thinking about what is it that they need to hear. What is going to be something that's going to actually make them reflect on their identity, not just by showing them a series of because, you know, something another idea I had was let's do something about let's do like four a four part series on like black activist struggles. But I feel like we do that so much. We like look at blackness and we analyze blackness and we deconstruct blackness and obviously there need to be spaces where we celebrate those stories, definitely. But at the same time, what we don't do very much is analyze, deconstruct, and investigate whiteness and Britishness and what makes up that identity. So this felt like a perfect way and a perfect time to do that, but through this like soft vessel almost of folk music. So it's not like you wouldn't necessarily know that that's what the intent of the series is when you start listening. But it kind of it's it's it kind of it gets it gets there. Um, and so that was I guess the kind of the main thinking behind behind the series.
0: Mm tell us a bit about the research process for a project like that um where do you begin and also with the songs and the music that you used um how do you find them
1: well as i said this like idea has like been with me for a while um so it was kind of like i already sort of connected to some of the i i already had a sense of the landscape and the territory so you know, for example, strange little zines about um, like stone circles and monoliths and stuff like this one called weird walk that I've been subscribed to for a while. So I had a few of their um, their zines. So I was sort of like rereading those and thinking about the people that like they were interviewing and that and strange little blogs. And, you know, so I, I guess it was like the, the landscape was already mapped out. It was just an invitation to go deeper into it. Um, and really, I mean, my my research process is really quite erratic. So what I tend to do is just like get an initial document and I just like start doing loads of random search searches. So like Stonehenge, New Age 2020, 2020, uh, young people, uh, druids, paganism. And that just like throw in I just like throw loads of random search terms out into the Internet and then just try and harvest as many different articles and weird stuff that I can and then just basically put them all into a document and then go through them one by one and just read and immerse myself in what is starts off something that's quite like unwieldy and then over time then I sort of return to the document then I get rid of the bits that aren't relevant and kind of like whittle bits away find the most interesting bits in terms of the ideas and then once you've got an idea of once I had an idea of the sort of territory that I wanted to let's say like I knew that in the first episode it'd be looking more at um, folk culture and maybe some other non-white people who are drawn to folk culture. And then the second episode was gonna look at, um, you know, colonialism, but in the context of England and Wales. And then, then I would start to like, then it becomes more of a hunt for people and voices and the people that are gonna tell those stories. So it, it was like, it was, and I was doing the research. So I kind of worked with um, Alan, on it, but because it was sort of all going on in my head, a lot of the research I was sort of just doing alone at home. Um, So yeah, it starts off something just kind of like rambling and wild, but then eventually you kind of sculpt it and you kind of narrow it down and And um, yeah, and I think also the fact that there was just like nothing else going on in my life because it was happening in lockdown (laughs) made made it quite easy. But also I did go a little bit mad just like waking up in the middle of the night like, oh, yes, don't forget that article, write it down. You know, Uh, I was definitely like a bit of a crackpot sort of scientist for (laughs) a few months. But um, yeah, I love that. I love that process. So it was good fun. Mm
0: -hmm. And how about when a piece of your work is kind of out there, is that like a part of the process that you consider or like worry about ever? And how did you find that the Albion work was received by the listeners?
1: Yeah, it was quite interesting actually, because um, so we did the first episode, we were kind of making it as it was going out. So the first one was done and then we were sort of like catching up with ourselves um, while producing the, the, the others. And the first episode went out and it goes to all the, it went to all the press and it got really good press and like lots of different newspapers and stuff were writing about it and da da da. And then that's, that suddenly filled me with fear because I had like that, that sort of made it real. That it was like, oh, this is going out. And it was also the idea that like they might like the, the first episode, but what are they going to think about the second and the third and the fourth? So I kind of had, after the first one went out. I kind of went through this big panic stage i think also because the first episode in a way is more gentle and it's just kind of like a lovely look at folk traditions and it kind of hints at the fact that it's going to go into like slightly more uncomfortable territory but it doesn't really go there and then so i was like oh but all these people what, what they you know because the third episode is a bit more on the head when it comes to like colonialism racism uh nationalism uh far-right like you know activity and so I was thinking oh god like I had to sort of go through this phase of like I can't you know it's always a part of me that wanted to like stop them from, <laughs> from going out um, but it's like once you're you just sort of have to let go and, and I guess I had to sort of go through that process of like whatever people say or think about this it's going out into the world and I just actually can't be too attached to the outcome especially like you know in this era where conversations about race and identity and stuff are so fraught and so um polarized you know there are going to be people that are going to be massively triggered and there were like we did get quite a few negative tweets about the woke literati trying to ban morris dancing and stuff like that but yeah there's a point where you have to let go it's just like okay this is it's happening i created something i'm no longer in control of so you know let it let it be but it is it's daunting
0: Mm, yeah for sure maybe it's like releasing you know your second album or something if your first one's gone down quite well and then you're just yeah
1: (laughs) well they still love me (laughs) yeah
0: exactly yeah i'd love for you to tell us a bit about um your ukg documentary also you can just see the the research just shines through on that one um Would you just introduce it for people who perhaps haven't heard it yet and um, tell us a bit about the process of making that?
1: Yeah, that was interesting. So it was um, a podcast that I made for Boiler Room probably two, two or three years ago now. And um, it was actually the first. So I was work as I mentioned. I was working with this production company called Cast Iron, and this was the first documentary that I sort of made as an independent producer, like out of that, and also not for not for BBC Radio three or four. So it was like quite daunting, but also very exciting. So Boiler Room at that time, um, they were doing this big season on UK Garage for the twenty year anniversary supposedly of the birth of UKG and um, they wanted to do a podcast about it but also they'd never made a podcast either so it was kind of like a bit of a wild west like make it up as you go along thing but yeah really really fun so initially they'd were commissioned they'd talked to me about making two podcasts one about the history of UK Garage and then one documentary that was like about women of UK Garage because they recognised that that was um, you know that the that the female pioneers of the scene, not just the vocalists, but the producers and the promoters and the DJs were often overlooked. But then it didn't. It felt like there wasn't something quite right about separating out those stories. Um, you know, let's create this separate thing for women, and then let's have the history of <laughs> UK garage. So we decided to pull them together, but to kind of to do that extra research to balance out the voices. So. That was that was um, that was really that was really fun. Quite a different research process to um, to my album because it just this is not a written archive. This is like something that's still obviously there are there have been documentaries and there have been books and lots of stuff things written about UK garage. But you still can sort of call people up and get their lived experiences of things. And also because we knew that we wanted to find like the voices that perhaps haven't been hadn't been represented. That meant you had to really, really do your research and find out and like who were the female DJs and who were the female producers and who were the female journalists and da 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 da. So I was just on the phone to like all of the kind of pioneers of UK Garage for like a a month or so and just like really digging out those unknown stories, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, like finding the characters and sort of weaving it together, and obviously, with that one very different to a radio four documentary where like you're even in a music documentary, you're quite limited in how much music you can put in it. This was just like you know we had so much and it was it was kind of like a soundtrack with voices woven in between, like the music was such an important like extra voice within within the documentary and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to make emerald um Rints. FM, she presented it and she was really great to work with and really enthusiastic. And yeah, it was good fun, except it was quite hard to manage some of the egos because you know, everyone's got their different story about where it started and who started, whose party was the first and whose was the best, and blah blah blah. And like these a lot of 50 year old men who were like, you know, still riding high on those days. And like, so it became there's quite a lot of ego management involved in that, and like how to tell a story that you know, didn't get too caught up in people's sort of like, you know, not not like. They didn't get too caught up in the politics of the scene, um, but I re-listened to it like the, like a few months back, and was just like, especially in an era where we're like starved of clubs and dance music and togetherness, it was like quite fun to listen to it and think, oh, <laughs> I hope that comes back soon. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about maybe one, I don't know, I'm a bit torn, maybe you can decide. I want to hear about your Karaku piece, but I also want to hear about the piece that you made with your mum. Um, So would you, maybe we could talk about both of them.
1: They're connected, I guess. Okay. So yeah, I mean, yeah, so I can't remember what year it was, but I yeah made this documentary um, called Big Drum and, and Little Karaku, which was for Radio 4, which was like the first... The first thing that i presented and i basically got sent off to the caribbean with like some equipment and just like okay go and make a documentary about your own family that you're going to present and kind of produce all by yourself so it was quite it was quite daunting it was quite scary it was amazing oh it was wonderful it was like wow i couldn't believe i could you know radio could take me to to you know to this caribbean island and i could just um go and talk with all these elders about um, this drumming ritual that my family were involved in, and like it was, it was a very special um, trip, and it was kind of all about my ancestors, and they were kind of, it, it was like feeling like almost like wanting my ancestors to help me out on this trip to like get that interview with that person who really doesn't want to talk and sometimes the ancestors were <laughs> were helping and other times they weren't it was quite challenging especially like working with Caribbean time you're like I've got two days to record this many interviews and blah, blah, blah. but yeah it was it was amazing um so that that program took me back to the island that my grandparents are from, and I guess the way in which it's connected to the Miami and Me, which is this documentary I did last year with my mum, is that um, my mum has schizophrenia, and when we went last went to Karakou together, she basically had a, um, a kind of relapse. She's kind of in recovery from schizophrenia, but she hasn't really been suffering from it or hasn't really like had any psychotic like episodes or anything like that for quite a long time but when we went back to Karakou about five or six years ago she started to hear voices basically and um that was quite that was a very difficult time um but it it kind of ended up um, providing inspiration for this theatre piece that we started to work on together that was about our relationship about um her schizophrenia about how it affected me but also this kind of deeper story of intergenerational trauma about slavery in the Caribbean and about how those kind of traumas like deep down in family lines can kind of um they're like ghosts that can come and revisit us in in the present day so um Miami and Me was a documentary that was kind of um about the making of this theatre piece that we were doing. Um, but it kind of became something in and of itself. And me and my mum have a lot of candid and quite difficult conversations in it about our relationship and about her illness. But it was, it was something that was very healing for us both. Daunt- again, daunting, scary, challenging, the idea of like putting something very intimate out there um, for a bunch of strangers to listen to and dissect and analyse. But um, it was also a very um, healing process process for us for us both. And um, Karaku, that island that my grandparents are from, was kind of like the backdrop for that, and it featured some sounds that we recorded that I recorded there and stuff like that. So yeah, it kind of takes me back to that story like at the beginning, I was talking about of like the intimacy of someone standing up and like telling you their life story. like it is it takes, it takes bravery and that's it was I guess that was the first time I really revealed so much of myself like on the radio so that was um that was um quite a powerful thing but yeah also fun my mum's uh yeah she's a big laugh so (laughs) so that it wasn't too heavy it was like hopefully there were bits of lightness and laughter in there too but yeah
0: I think your listeners will have Gathered by now that a lot of your programs are deeply personal, which makes for this like incredibly authentic storytelling. But it must have an effect on your kind of reality, whether it's learning about your family members and ancestors or going over like you say moments with your mum. Uh, how do you balance like giving your all to a piece of work um, with making sure you're not kind of overwhelmed by information? Um,
1: I think working with the right people is key. So with the Miami and me um, program, it was the first documentary that I made with Alan, um, who I did, um, Alan Hall, who I did my album with. And it was a real test of our working relationship um, because it was like, he was, well, I say a test, but I mean, he, he proved himself um, because he was very so sensitive so like not pushing me too much, like very, very empathetic, very caring, very like he was just super in tune and, and I felt very held, I guess, by him and working with him. So even though we were kind of going into quite dark places with my mum, I felt very much sort of protected um working with him and he he was very sensitive to like you know when it came to scripting or the edit because we sort of edited together and he wouldn't like impose anything on me um and he was just yeah so that that's that's one thing that really helps because I have had experiences working with other people where you know they're not really connected to that emotional dimension of the work and it's just work and it's just like come on you've got to do it and, blah, 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 blah. and it's like no 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 with this stuff like it's like sacred it's like very sensitive you can't you have to sort of treat it differently, so so I think that's something that really helps. But yeah, I mean, obviously the one with my mum was like very obviously personal, but I don't. It's I think it just comes quite naturally. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like. It doesn't ever feel like too much giving, and um, I think I guess there's a part of me that wants to like share because I want it to have a positive impact on other people, and so then when you see that like when you get a message from someone saying like oh you know i have this relationship with my mom and it's been awful and hearing a program made me feel this or that you know that just it makes it there's like a sacrifice that's made by sharing something but it always it, it always feels worth it i know it's corny but it <laughs> it does because when it when it reaches and touches other people who may be suffering or feeling similar things and you get that reflected back to you i guess that just makes it worthwhile so so um, yeah
0: yeah definitely and that's one of the most beautiful things about listening to a story being told through audio it's like so direct and yeah like you say so intimate. Um, so this is kind of a question that I would ask to producers of music um, on the podcast but I kind of love asking it to you in this type of context and um, it's about developing your kind of sonic style um, and my observation was that you use a lot of gems that other producers might kind of discard as outtakes and you use that with them to tell the stories how do you reckon you developed your style within documentary making
1: well thanks for saying i have a style because i i I, I don't really i'm not really conscious of having a style maybe I think I feel like I'm only just getting out of the stage of like learning how to do it. So, yeah, that's that's nice to hear. Um what my style? I mean, yeah, I think it's influenced by the people that I've worked with. Um so in some ways like I think starting off with BBC Radio 4 in quite a traditional uh, production company like that obviously has an influence in terms of being quite meticulous with the storytelling and the structure and the progression. But like that can also be a burden sometimes because like sometimes my mind is so but how does this fit with this and how does this fit? And how's it? You know, you're so caught up in the kind of steps that sometimes you can just be a bit more random or a bit more intuitive with things. So I guess that's one that's something that helps me, but also I have to kind of sometimes shake myself out of to be, be a bit more loose and free with things. But um, I think w- falling tree this other production company like they they're they're all about those little intimate moments and it's sort of less it's like more you know like I said earlier this kind of split between the kind of rational logical and then the more free loose intuitive like they're definitely more on that side of things where it's they've kind of taught me about the beauty of leaving in the awkward blunders and the kind of little off offside the things that tell it say so much without having to say anything you know and like trying not to over explain and say oh this bit you're going to hear is from blah, blah 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 you know that sometimes especially with like more traditional bbc radio documentaries that there's kind of a lot of over, like signposting and over explaining so i guess there's sort of things that i've picked up along the way but also just like a love of music and a love of i think that there's like all of my documentaries i'm trying to like create as much Of a kind of musical or like um yeah just try finding the beauty in sound that's not just about what's being said but like you know um how to find other ways sonically to tell to tell stories and yeah i mean as i said i don't feel like it's a conscious style but it's probably a combination of all those things Mm
0: -hmm. now that makes sense um when you've got a lot of material in front of you how do you kind of edit or pick which avenues to go down that will be you know interesting for a potential listener when you might find all of it interesting like how do you edit that (laughs) oh good
1: question that is like (laughs) the mystery of of, uh producing i mean it's really hard (laughs) it's really hard when you've got for example when i came back from the caribbean to make that documentary. And I had hours and hours and hours worth of drums and all these people that I'd interviewed and family members and, you know, atmospheric sound. And actually with that documentary, that was quite a good example of where like things kind of go a bit wrong. Cause I'd sort of gone to basically record this big drum event that then when I got there, my uncle was like, Oh no, sorry, it's not happening. You have to come back in July. I was like, I can't come back in July. I've got two days. So the story, you know, I came back and I was like, I thought I'd failed at my mission. And I was like, how am I going to make the story without, um, this thing that I thought I was gonna gonna record. And then in the end, it became, it wasn't meant to be such a personal story, but in the end, that's how we kind of filled in the gap because it became more about my personal journey and um, exploration. But, you know, coming back, I remember coming back and just having all this audio and it's not clear, the path isn't clear. You just really have to listen deeply to everything. So part of my process is listening, and this is quite old school. I'll actually transcribe everything, like all the audio by hand and just that kind of just tunes me in like deeper I guess and then I just make notes about the things that are the most interesting and then I go away and then I'll come back to it and then I'll have found all those bits that were the most interesting and be like what story is this telling like what what can I how can I use the best bits of audio to tell to tell a story um, but it's it's hard work and actually you know I've it can be very isolating as a producer. Um, especially, um, you know, late nights in the edit suite at, like, 1am, just, like, sort of moving two bits of audio back and forth <laughs> repeatedly, like, am I going mad? Yes, you are. Um, and I found it really valuable actually working, co-producing, so, like, with my Albion and my Amy and me. Like, we, we'll sit side by side and we'll, like, move things around together and then he'll do or a draft, and then send it to me, and then I'll suggest things. So I I much prefer that process because you just don't get into that sort of like completely frazzled headspace where you've got no um, kind of perspective on whether one thing sounds better better than the other. Because the truth is, you could you could put them together in infinite variations of orders, and like you could probably make ten brilliant documentaries out of the audio that you have. So it is it's really hard to make those decisions. But for me, I think um, be- becoming more collaborative. Um, in in the production process has been really valuable and, and helped me a lot because you kind of you, you share that burden of decision making and I'm really indecisive but as well so that makes it even harder
0: what are your tips for staying organized when you are in the depths of a project so I'm not very I'm not actually very
1: organized so I don't know what, <laughs> what tips I have. Um, um, what would the tips be uh in the depths of a project, just work with other people who are organized. <laughs> that would be for me. Uh, Cause it's not my nature. I think um, I, I can, in terms like my brain is quite structured but when it comes to organizing and keeping on top of things it's it's not great so yeah i think it works best for me to work with other people who are organized and can help me on in that in that respect <laughs> although that's not always possible
0: unfortunately mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important to play to your strengths for sure <laughs> so music clearly underpins a huge amount of what you do and um, let's actually talk about your djing and i was wondering if you'd ever noticed any Similarities um, in terms of curating for a DJ set as you would for making a program.
1: Yeah, probably not so much a de- like a live DJ set because I don't tend to plan those as much. But definitely with um, NTS, um, like on the radio, I there are definitely parallels. Um, because in a way, the way that I plan my show is quite, like, I I can really feel when the structure, and because I plan it, I literally do song by song, and I can feel when it's right, and I can just feel when it's not right, and it's part of this kind of organisational part of my mind that's like, this flows into this, and it's it's not even rational, it's just like, there's a structure that works, and I'm quite satisfied when I've got the structure and the flow that works. So, in that sense, and, you know, it's kind of like, it's not that dissimilar to like editing on a on a screen. Although I just do playlists, but like you're still, you're moving little blocks around and you're going, What about if that bit goes there, does that flow? And what about if that bit goes there, does that flow? So in that sense it's quite similar. I guess what's nice about it is that, you know, I'll I'll be in that process and it's very intuitive and then I don't really realise what the logic is until sometimes I'm like playing the show out and then I hear it and then I'll I'll know why those things sounded right. Oh, it's because that like things that I didn't necessarily notice in the moment but I'll be like oh that song mentions this and then it's there in the next song or there's a little like jingle of spiritual jazz bells right at the start and then it comes back in this track or whatever so it's quite funny like then when you hear your logic like being played back out to you but as I said like I sometimes can get a bit too like er, er, logic order structure and like it's very important sometimes to just like l- be random and let let chance come in as well. So that's something I could probably do a bit more more of but there are definitely parallels for sure.
0: I wondered if one parallel might be the kind of idea of taking someone on a journey throughout, you know, a 1 hour DJ set or whatever um compared to uh a radio program where you have sort of a start, something happens in the middle, and then it's wrapped up in the end.
1: Yeah, I guess that is. I mean, it's like to be honest, talking about DJing just feels like I'm having to sort of grasp it for some like distant chamber in my mind. That's like, did that even happen? <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, I think DJing is one is 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 quite different. I guess in that it's it is more intuitive. And I think when I first started off, I would literally like plan my sets. And then then you realise that, yeah, that's one way to do it, but it's a lot less fun, because part of the beauty of DJing is when you get into a, a complete flow with the people who you're playing to. And it's quite rare, I think, to find that, that experience where you're in a room and actually everyone is, like, listening and present and, like, they're, you know, when that chemistry happens, it's amazing, but it's quite rare. But then it's like, there's no logic, there's no, like, logical order and structure planned there. Then it is very much just, like, bodily, this one, yeah, pick out the right thing at the right time. Sometimes you don't, but then it's, like, fine, because it takes you in... You, sometimes a mistake will take you into a little journey, a little avenue you didn't expect to go in. Like, there's got, I've got quite a funny memory of playing at um, We Out Here Festival, like... Um, a couple of well whenever it was whenever it was like two two years ago and I thought my set was an hour long so I like ended on like this big like um kind of like transcendent jungle track I think it was nookie celebrate life like this is going to be the big finale and then they were like oh you've got half an hour left (laughs) and I was like oh shit but like it was actually so nice because I'd taken it to that peak and then it was like oh well from here we could go anywhere and it was like so much fun to sort of sometimes those mistakes like or whatever you want to call them they just like set you off on another path and that can be quite fun so it's definitely for me a much more loose experience like live DJ sets.
0: Mm. Um, How's it been also in the past almost a year broadcasting from home because obviously you had experience doing live radio with NTS but now you've had to relearn basically how to do things from home. Um, What's that been like for you and How have you kind of noticed the community around your show change or grow?
1: Um, Yeah, it's been... It's been actually quite nice, in a way. I mean, I do get frustrated sometimes about, oh, God, like, like, my room's a mess, or, like, the equipment is, like, all, like, dusty and in the way, and, you know, I don't have much space. Actually, big up to the NTS crew, because they've just sent me a clamp mic stand, which has changed everything. <laughs> so that, like, honestly, I was so happy when they sent me that. I was like, God, this is where my, like, pleasure in life is coming from now. It's like... <laughs> Clamp mic stands um yeah so it can be it can get frustrating doing it for my bedroom with limited space but also it's very it's intimate and I think my show is quite intimate anyway in that I don't I, I I probably have some kind of radio persona but like I do again I kind of share a lot on the radio and um sometimes there isn't a filter and I'm very much myself so I think that in a way being in quite like a being in an intimate environment, like, of my bedroom and, like, being at home, it kind of suits that. So I've I've, I've enjoyed it, and I feel like, um, you know, the radio has become so much more of a lifeline for people during this time. And I've really felt that, like, just, you know, the chat room... Because usually, like, Saturday morning show, like, people might be tuned in with a hangover, but they're not really going to... Like, usually they're not really in the chat room, like, at 10am, like, hello. But they have been because no one's going anywhere. So that's become a lot more active. And I think for a lot of people my show and others have been like a bit of a lifeline and a way to connect with other people through the radio so that's been very nice to be a part of that and um also like you know there was one period I think I was just sort of like because part of the music research that I would do for my show would just be like being in the world like going to a record shop or going to a gig or meeting someone and they'd be like oh have you heard this and all of that suddenly was gone so you know and like just searching for stuff online isn't quite as inspiring so there was a moment where I just was getting a bit frustrated with the show and then I like took a few weeks off and I I just I really missed it I really missed having that rhythm having that routine and having that moment every Saturday morning where I'm just like connected to like a few hundred people and like all the messages that come in and so it's yeah it's like a lifeline for me um as much as anybody else so yeah I mean like I'm not gonna say that I'm like I, I'm looking forward to the studio coming back definitely <laughs> just have a bit more space but um, yeah it's been it's been kind of nice doing it from home as well so
0: mm. yeah it makes it just different it's a whole new thing really mm-hmm. what would your advice be to someone listening who might have a story or they think they might have a story that they want to tell but they don't know where to start and they're not sure about it
1: I feel that you know in a way there's a positive and negative about kind of where we are right now in terms of like the radio world and podcasting and stuff and that like it's so accessible like you really don't need any fancy equipment you can download reaper for free to do your editing you could like record on your iphone that's like decent enough like you know big like bbc radio Three and four, like they do interviews on iPhones now. Like it's so any, you know. There's a sense in which access to these tools and technologies and and being able to like record and document your stories is so accessible. So, you know that's great. But then obviously there's the issue of, you know, because everyone can create stuff, it's harder to get your things heard and whatnot, not and, and stuff like that. But I would say, you know it's just about, like, finding the things, finding the stories that really mean something to you, that are personal to you, that, like, that you just love and you're passionate about and you want to back. And just kind of... Just have confidence and faith in that and, like, try and find a ways to, like, do things yourself, if you can, as a start, and then you've got something to show and you can share it with other people and you can kind of get that ball rolling. But the most important thing is that whatever this story is or whatever this kind of project is of yours, that you you really like you back it like you're really invested in it because that that's what shines through and i really believe that like if you are if you're kind of meant to be if this is a story that needs to get out there or like it will just it will it will find a way to get out there and you'll meet people that want to hear it or like little openings will happen so i think just the key thing is to to just like find the things that are authentic to you and and back them fully and then it doesn't really matter if it gets the biggest, like if I know it doesn't if you if you feel that way, then small successes will mean a lot as much as the big the big ones. So I think I think it should come from that. It should come from like your gosh, I'm I'm, going to say it because I'm corny. But it should come from your heart and it should come from something authentic within you rather than some big idea of where you want it to be. Like start with you and then then like everything else will follow that's not very good like practical career advice but
0: that's that's what comes to mind I think it's just about having that confidence to um take the first step basically
1: yeah and also yeah I guess also I would say like just contact the people that are doing things that you respect and like and you know again if you're like whenever if I ever receive a message from someone and I can just tell it's totally genuine I'll always find time to like share a bit or like have you know send an email or have a phone call or whatever so like just yeah just try and connect and like have try and find the confidence to reach out to people who are like on you know who who you admire and you know not all of them will respond but some might and give you a little bit of feedback and whatever and i think yeah that's that's always a a good a good first step
0: Mm -hmm. and seeing as we're all spending more time at home at the moment Um, yeah I'm going to ask you for a recommendation what have you been listening to or reading or watching or taking in um, lately that you are really into
1: (sighs) well um, let's have a think it's kind of been interesting I think because my mind was sort of for like so much of last year my mind was very much like saturated that I've kind of I've been finding it difficult to like take in content at the moment, like I'm struggling to find books that stick and I haven't really been able to listen to many podcasts and stuff like that. I'm just kind of enjoying the the kind of the brain space. Um, one thing, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, you can't recommend like a really bait TV series. I will, I will. Cause I'm not really, I don't really watch much telly, but like I went, I was like um, at my, families um like before Christmas and like they're big watchers and they were like, You've got to watch Succession and I was like, No, I don't want to, I don't watch television, but <laughs> anyway, I've got deeply into, into Succession. So I recommend that. But um in, in terms of books and so, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um what have I read recently? Um I will always recommend any Herman Hess book, um and it's something that has like been quite in terms of storytelling as well, um, he's a German writer, and you can get like translations of his biggest books. He wrote like a book called *Siddhartha*, which is very famous. *Narcissus and Goldmund*, and um, *The Glass Bead Game*, and like they're they're very beautifully simply written, especially some of his short stories. Like so sim- so simple, almost like kind of fairy tale like, but they're very. Deep and spiritual and like kind of philosophical books, and it's a great example of how to tell a very kind of deep and complex story in a very simple way. So, I'll always recommend that. Um, and yeah, that's it. So, I've got God, Herman Harrison's Succession, right? Well, <laughs> that says quite a lot about, about where my headspace is, is at the moment. <laughs> I wish I had better recommendations. You could have warned me about that one, Martha.
0: Uh, yeah, I could have, to be <laughs> fair, but I wanted the real. <laughs> the true recommendation
1: (laughs) yeah sorry that's all i've got oh wait i do okay we've got one uh, one thing um the there's a really really amazing quite heavy but beautiful documentary um about the new cross fire that um, um falling tree put out a few months ago but obviously it was the 40 year anniversary a few days ago. And that is such—it's a harrowing but beautiful, beautifully put together um, piece of audio. There's no presenter in the traditional s- sense, so it's all kind of fragmented, and there's a lot of music in there. It—it it reminds me a lot of Small Axe, and especially Lovers Rock. You know this idea, and the way that there's one moment in the documentary where they're sort of conjuring this this party scene and the music you just want to be there but you know what's going to happen and it's horrible but you're also so intoxicated by this sense and feeling of this party it's a very very powerful piece of storytelling and and quite sort of um you might say experimental and non-conventional in the way that it deals with this really difficult story so I would I would um I definitely recommend that but it's 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 like a it's it's You have to go and sit and kind of give it time because it's not an easy listen. But um I think it's called From the Ashes of New Cross. So there you go. I came up with something cultural.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that. Um so before I let you go, I would love to hear what you're kind of considering doing next.
1: Yeah. So I've been thinking about it a lot, especially kind of like this time of year is a time for reflecting and you know, this time last year, I was like, I had this whole year planned of travel and bu- I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do it? I'm going to be so busy. And I was like, I'm not going to stop. Like I was in January looking at the year thinking I can't stop till June. And then obviously it all that <laughs> came crashing away. So I'm trying not to, you know, I'm trying not to like try and, um, you know, see the future too much. But um, I, I would really like to work on another big series for Radio 4 um i have an idea at the moment that i'm sort of developing which is kind of historical philosophical um yeah like a big kind of a big a big idea that it would be quite exciting if if it happened and it's quite it would require a lot of like deep research that's quite daunting but also exciting and i'm also like i've been doing a few bits of writing and i I've, I've, I've been um enjoying that and thinking about like wanting to deepen like the Albion series doesn't feel like completely done to me and so I kind of were thinking about maybe I'd I'd like to write something in connection to that or somehow continue that research a bit further and I think a lot of people that listened to it were like oh we'd like we want to to hear more so I don't know if I do like am I Albion part two (laughs) but like yeah to somehow find a, a way for that those ideas to kind of keep living and keep being explored would be nice and also i just hope
0: i can go on holiday as well (laughs) at some point oh (laughs) yeah big plans yeah that's 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 all well Zakia, thank you so much for bringing us behind the scenes of all your projects it's been really really cool to hear about your process and the ideas behind some of your work so thank you
1: Thank you, thanks for having me, it's nice. And hopefully I didn't just ramble on <laughs> for the past hour. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. When you wake up in the morning and your eyelids are frozen and all around your body your lovers lie broken I do to spare Tomorrow may bring roses do to spare Tomorrow may
0: bring love Thank you for listening to the RA Exchange. We will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, our full archive is available for you to take in. And if you find something you love, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts as it does help to get our stories to more ears.